Hello and welcome to Candid, a podcast about the craft of photography, covering the skills and technology we contend with on the road from hobbyist to professional. We're glad you're with us, and since it's probably your first time, it seems like a good opportunity to introduce ourselves. My name is Marius, I work as a creative director and photographer in Toronto, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts Josh and Alvaro. How's it going guys? Hey Marius, I, I, my name is Josh. Uh, I myself live in Winkler, Manitoba, Canada, uh, just a few provinces over. Uh, I do a little bit of creative work on my own uh, for my own site called The Newsprint. You can check it out at thenewsprint.co. Uh, I also write for a site called Tools and Toys. I'm the reviews editor and the deals editor over on that site. And we do a bunch of photography reviews and general gear reviews of bags and uh, computer gadgets and so on. Uh, so I contribute some of those reviews. I edit them myself. And uh, that's my the extent of my creative work. And hello there, guys. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Alvaro, and I live in Madrid, Spain. You know, just a short swim away from Canada. Uh, I write about technology, photography, and design at analogsenses.com, which is my personal website. And other than that, I'm also, like Josh, a general contributor to Tools and Toys, uh, where I get to help out writing product reviews, gear guides, uh, photo essays, all sorts of cool stuff. I guess it's worth mentioning that I also contribute to Tools and Toys. This is what we have in common. And it's funny, if you're sitting around wondering how we got here, uh, this, uh, this podcast came together um, remarkably fast because all three of us decided that, hey, you know what we all really love? Photography and talking about photography with other people. And so, uh, yeah, literally like two weeks after that conversation, here we are, live on air. Done. Thanks to your magic work, no less. Well, I don't know about magic. So what do you guys think? Should we dive in? Chat a little bit? Yeah, let's dive in. Let's dive in. Okay, let's let's get started. Yeah. All right. So there was an article published not too long ago on uh, fstoppers.com. And uh, it, was, it was kind of an editorial article um, from one of their writers talking about the obsession with bokeh, um, which is the word that you've probably seen floating around if you read about photography on the internet. And it's it's kind of a, a nebulous term that refers to the quality of the out-of-focus areas of an image. And uh, and this article is, is discussing how this author had a journey through uh, photography that, that basically started with him discovering the potential of this effect and then getting kind of uh, lost in trying to pursue it uh, ad nauseum and basically losing sight of, of uh, the bigger picture of photography, um, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, because he was just trying to make everything out of focus and oh my goodness, how good it looks and so on and so forth. So what did you guys, uh, what did you guys make of this article? Well, first off, like, is it bokeh or bokeh? That's a good one. Like, I, I don't know. We, we, like, we shoot photos and do all that all the time and I am a sucker for background blur, but I don't know how to say that word. We might need to come up with like a candid manual of style, if you will. Yeah, we definitely need something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with bokeh. Me too. Bokeh? Bokeh. Yeah, exactly. Okay, bokeh. I'm with Kai, the guy from Digital Ref TV on this one. Right. He always says bokeh, so let's go with that one. Okay, bokeh. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. If it's good enough for Kai, it's good enough for me. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, like for one, I got to get on board with um, with Sean Mullen's ar argument or, or um, raison d'etre of this article um, because... I am a huge background blur fan and I can't get over the lower f-stop number. I'm kind of in the middle of that right now. I did a little shoot yesterday where I realized that f1.8 on a full frame sensor is plenty, plenty, plenty of um, 
of background blur and shallow depth of field. And I'm realizing only now, maybe after a full two years of shooting quite regularly, that it's not all it's meant to be or cut out to be. Um, but that's a very hard self-realization. Yeah, I completely agree, Josh. I I had sort of a similar uh, journey, not perhaps not not so much. Uh, I never saw it as a problem, not like Sean mentions in the article. To me, it was just uh, a fascination when I first got my my Olympus EM10, which was my first uh, real camera, so to speak. Uh, I realized that I could do those things, right? I, and one of the first lenses I bought was the Olympus 45mm f1.8, which is a gorgeous lens and absolutely uh, a fantastic value for the money. And that lens uh, goes to f1.8. And I was really, really, really happy with the amount of uh, background blur that I was able to achieve with that with it. So that was definitely enough for me, right? And when I started reading that people thought that the Micro Four Thirds system was not able to achieve that effect as convincingly as, of course, full frame or even APS-C, I started wondering, like, am I missing something here? Because I'm, for me, this is amazing. I, ha I had never seen anything like that, right? Then, of course, once you start going to wider lenses, it's harder to get it. And once you stop down to f2, f3.2, it's basically really, really hard to get anything uh, out of focus in a Micro Four Thirds camera. Right. Isn't that Micro Four Thirds thing? Like, it seems, because I'm the same way. I start Micro Four Thirds, and maybe that's where the obsession comes from, is because we couldn't have it. It's like out there. There's a little bit of an inferiority complex right. online, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. And but like like I was saying, once you step up to a full frame camera, you realize that depth of field uh, can actually limit you if you're trying to shoot in low light and you are forced to to go uh, to open up the lens to 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 go wide open. Sometimes you actually can't work because the the depth of field is not uh, deep enough to get everything that you want to capture in focus. And that becomes a real problem as well. I'd rather have that problem though than, than not being able to blur the background out. Well, I think it's a tricky line to walk because if just imagine for a moment you're at a concert or at a bar at night that is really, really low lit. Then if you wanted to get the singer and the guitarist both in focus, uh, your only option is to stop down and then you're going to have to go to ISOs of maybe 10,000, which is not always usable, well, certainly not with every camera out there. So that can be a real problem. Where, where do you fall on this, Marius? Uh, I mean, to me, it was something that I struggled with. Um, I mean, I, I won't say I struggled with it because I enjoyed it, but it was something that as soon as I got my first real camera, which was, uh, um, I basically graduated from the Canon Rebel XSI, I think it was, to, uh, to the 5D Mark II. And of course, you know, you go to a full frame sensor and you get your first prime lens and you stop it all the way wide open. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's something there's something about that look. And I think part of what makes this such a slippery slope is that in general, if you show these images to, um, you know, just a general audience of, of people, they look at images with a shallow depth of field and they perceive them as more professional. And I think this is, this is partly because of the, the technical limitations of what they're used to shooting with. Because if you carry around your iPhone and you take beautiful iPhone photos, um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a, 
a f limit based on physics of, of the kind of depth of field you can expect to get from an iPhone. And then that means that if you're used to looking at photos like that and you suddenly see something with a very shallow depth of field, you have this understanding that, okay, this must have been taken with, with a better camera. And then it becomes about the camera instead of about the shot. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of where it all fell apart for me is, uh, and, and I think, um, in the article it's, it's mentioned, um, as well. If you think about photography historically and the photography that's become, you know, uh, appreciated as like classic, excellent photography, um, most of it is not actually shots with shallow depth of field. It's usually things that, that have almost everything in focus. You know, it's the, the classic street photography stuff. It's not, it's not really close-ups. It's not, uh, the kind of portraiture where everything is is blown out except for their face. Um, and once you realize that, you kind of notice that, okay, wait a minute, if if I'm just trying to pursue shallow depth of field, I'm missing out on so many other aspects of photography that are, in many ways, I think, more important. Yeah, that was probably the kicker for me, too. I was reading through the article, and I hit the historical part where it says, you know, the most powerful photos are from the, from the past 150 years are all, you know, they have a very uh, big depth of field. I think that for me was the kicker too. And since reading this article, I have had a lot of realizations. So I do thank Sean for getting his um, his thoughts out there because uh, he has helped this photographer out here in poor old Winkler, Manitoba. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think once you start thinking about photography in terms of, uh, you know, it being a storytelling medium, uh, it becomes clear that you need that that space, you need that depth to be able to tell a story. And if, if you can't, um, I mean, if you blur out 90% of your frame, then there's not much of a story there for anyone. I mean, don't get me wrong, depth of field, uh, a thin depth of field can work very well to draw the attention of the viewer to a particular element on the picture that you want, you want them to look at. That's a very good use for it. And it certainly has its place. But yeah, I don't think obsessing with it and reducing all your work to just that effect as, as nice looking as it may be uh, yeah that's not a very good way to go so i do thank sean as well for making us more aware of this because sometimes even though it's not every day that you that you start wondering about these things but every now and then it's good to to be aware of them so another really uh, really good article that hit the hit the web this past week was craig Maud's review of the like q um, and it has been, it has graced my RSS feed through multiple different blogs, probably five, six, seven times already. So, um, Alvaro, I know you are, um, a huge fan of the Leica Q. So why don't you like dive into that? Of course. Of course. I love it. I, love it. I have two on pre-order, you know, <laughs> two of them, <laughs> one for each hand. I bought two of them. Yeah. One to use every day and another one for when the first one breaks, of course. <laughs> I was thinking about ordering a third one, you know, to have it. Uh, sealed in the box and sell it in 20 years as a collector's item. Good idea. That's good thinking. <laughs> it's like a day iPhone and a night iPhone. and. <laughs> but that that might be overkill. I think actually the, the, the camera will be priced higher if people know that I've used it. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, You got to sign the box. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, or the camera even. What do you not like about this thing? This camera seems incredible. Well, just yeah, well. Let, let's let's be let's be clear. Let's be honest here. I really am not a huge fan of the Leica Q. Uh, I love Leica as a brand. I love what they stand for, which is uh, ultimate quality and uh, excellence from in in everything from manufacturing to presentation to 
whatever. I mean, they are a, a great brand. Unfortunately, I don't think they are very uh, rational when it comes to pricing their products. And uh, so I've never been attracted to those, to those uh, you know, cameras. The Leica Q in particular is not so much the price that, uh, that bums me out. It's uh, actually the fixed lens and the fact that it's a 28mm lens. So even if I were okay with spending, you know, several thousand dollars on a camera, which today, as of today, I'm really not, but even if I were, I probably wouldn't buy the Leica Q. I would much prefer buying something like the Sony RX1R2, which is very similar on paper, only it has a 35mm lens instead of a 28. And I just consider myself uh, a much, much more comfortable with a 35 millimeter lens than I would be with a, with a 28. I'm glad to hear that it's subjective. Uh, and that it's your, th- it's comes down to lens focal length. Cause I, I thought there might be something, uh, a little bit more of a stingy factor in there, but I, I love the 28 millimeter focal length. I've never tried the Leica Q, but I love that specific personally. Right. And there's a very good argument to be made that a 28 millimeter lens, if you crop, you can actually recreate the field of view of a 35 millimeter lens, right? Which the Q does in in body, right? Yeah, you can you can you have frame lines for 35 and 50, so you can automatically crop in camera to sort of have a, a, an equivalent field of view as to what you would get from a 35 millimeter lens or a 50 millimeter lens. The problem with that approach and the Leica Q in particular is that you're not really so you don't have that much resolution to play with. The Leica Q has a 24 megapixel sensor, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, I would consider that for 2016 to be rather conservative. I don't think they are, uh, I don't think this is a camera necessarily with a lot of shelf life. Not that Leica really cares about that because they'll be happy to sell you a Q2 in three years with a, 32 megapixel sensor, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm just, if they uh, suggest or imply that you can use this camera to crop and, and sort of play with different fields of view, I think they should have gone gone all the way and given it a higher res sensor to really be able to do that without being constrained by the lack of resolution. Marius, what's your thought on... Uh, like- on the 28 versus 35 millimeter. You've used the X100T, correct? Yeah, the X100T is is sort of my most beloved possession and camera. Um, so I'm, I'm very used to the 35 mil um, perspective, but just this, uh, this past week, especially, I've been uh, testing out the new X70, also from Fuji, and that has a fixed 28 millimeter lens. And I have to say, I'm uh, I'm falling pretty hard for this little guy. I mean, the, and it, largely it's because of the uh, it's because of the focal length that there's just enough difference, I think, between 28 and 35 that it uh, it encourages a different kind of shooting. It's not like wide enough that you're going into okay, I'm shooting a wide angle lens mode. Um, but 28, there's something there's something really nice about it. And so for me, looking at the Q. Uh, it's, uh, I, the, the, the 28 mil would not bother me at all. Um, you, if you'd asked me a few weeks back, maybe I would have said, um, that, that I'd be less excited about it. But honestly, after having shot 28 mil exclusively, um, for the past, like I said, about a week and a half now, um, I could definitely, I could definitely work with that. Um, what, what I don't actually like is the fact that they included that, that crop thing, uh, that feature at all. Like it, that to me seems, um, 
almost contrary to their brand. I mean, that's very gimmicky in a way that Leica isn't isn't typically, you know? Like it's something that first of all only applies to the JPEGs. Obviously, you always get the full res raw file out of the camera. Do you? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's only the JPEGs that get cropped. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And but what what it does is it imprints the um the raw file with some sort of metadata so that in a um compatible raw processor, it will actually pre-crop to the correct framing from the JPEG, but then of course you can undo it. Like in Lightroom, for instance, you can you can pull back out to the full uh, to the full frame if you want to. But anyway, so that's yeah. To me, to me, that's kind of explicitly gimmicky in a way that I did not expect from Leica. But everything else about that camera is is very tempting, and I I don't think that there's anything wrong with 24 megapixels uh, now. I mean, I know that you guys are now um, shooting primarily Sony bodies, so you're used to having. Uh, a lot of megapixels to play with, but realistically, 24 is a really healthy compromise between um, the ability to crop and the ability to have, um, uh, you know, controlled noise, and uh, especially for for a full frame sensor. I mean, there's, I think it's a good compromise um, for 2016. And honestly, like I've been shooting with 16 megapixel cameras um, through the Olympus bodies and the Fuji bodies, and I've done, you know, big prints. I've done commercial work and it's it's honestly it's fine like you yes resolution buys you certain things but i think that people make a bigger deal about that than they necessarily need to um but as far as the q goes i mean that's that's the camera that to me is the the pinnacle of um the x100t philosophy i think i think if um if anything it deserves the price and it, it is reasonably priced because there isn't really anything else like it. I mean, if you if you compare the Sony RX1R2, uh, RX, yeah, RX1R2, yeah. RX1R2, yeah. What a terrible name, RX1, oh. Yeah, I got it right though, I got it right. <laughs> you did. RX1R2, that one. Um, you're missing, you know, you're, you're missing certain, um, uh, certain key elements of ergonomics that I think are important. I mean, I've held both cameras, and there really isn't a comparison in uh, in how they feel in the hand. And to me, that's important, um, especially for a camera that, uh, you know, like the Q is designed to be with you a lot. And I think that Craig's review actually highlights this um, because he, you know, he took it all over the world. It was his main camera for quite a long time. He actually put it through um, harsher conditions than it on paper is supposed to be able to withstand. Um, and it, it, you know, I don't know that I would have trusted um, the RX-1R to do that as comfortably. I don't know if he would have enjoyed the experience as much. I know that I wouldn't have, but I, I don't tend to like Sony ergonomics very much. Um, but I mean, there's, there's not like there's that much competition for that particular category of camera. And while yes, that's a lot of money to drop on a camera, like don't get me wrong, that is that is a very, very expensive camera. Um, but I, I don't know if I would agree that it's not worth that much money. Yeah, what, what I think is really, Craig touches on this and I think it's a very, very good uh, observation. He says that you're basically spending money on a lens and that's spot on um, because the camera here, like a normal Leica lens is gonna be in that four or five, six thousand dollar range, anyhow, very often. Um, so with the Leica Q, if you spend four thousand dollars or whatever the price is on this camera, um, everything, all of the controls, everything is on that lens. It almost, it, it when it comes to Leica, you're getting a body for free in this case. Yeah, that's a very good way of looking at it. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that actually, because Josh, I know you really like to experiment with different lenses and you know focal lengths and. Uh, 
play with all the options that are out there. And, and you have plenty of experience with a lot of lenses in the Micro Four Thirds systems, definitely. And I, I, I'd like to get your opinion on, on the fixed lens nature of this camera. Uh, do you think you could uh, make it work for you if it was your only camera? Oh, it's a tough question. No, I don't think I could. Um, I, my, my tinkering side of me, like there's a reason why my blog is locked down and I can't change things because I'm constantly tinkering with focal lengths and, and everything. Uh, so no, I don't think I could, um, but I'd love to try. Right. The, the thing to me is I, I, I don't think I could pull it off either. I probably would be happy, you know, day to day uh, for my uh, spare time or for my personal Uh, photography but uh, when it comes to work I don't think I could use that machine as a work tool and I realize it's not intended as to be a work tool it's more of a, uh, a personal companion like Marius was saying it's a camera that's meant to be on you at all times and I think Leica is really trying to aim it at people wanting to capture memories of their life their trips their yeah sort of a, a, a having a tool to document every aspect of your life that you're going to remember forever, right? And in that in that frame of mind, I could see myself using uh, a camera like this, but for, I'm sorry to come back to the price matter, but I think, I, I don't think I could justify spending so much money on a, on a fixed lens camera today. And it's just, uh, it seems counterintuitive to me. And I realize what you said, Josh, and that's a great point that, It's basically the price of a regular Leica lens. So if you see, if you look at it that way, and you're a Leica shooter, it, it sure looks like a bargain. But for me, looking at looking at it from the outside, it's still not something that I could ever ever see myself doing. Uh, but but see, that's 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 where I, I mean, because we're not in the target audience necessarily for absolutely. us it's not absolutely well no no no. but but hang on what i'm getting at is that for us it's an aspirational thing it's not something that we can contemplate immediately but it's i'm looking at it from the perspective of future me you know rich successful good-looking future me oh. who who may well <laughs> be in a position to purchase a camera like this and who might be able to justify spending that kind of money on a camera in which case if like I almost want to frame the question differently. Let's say that the price is just erased entirely. Let's say it's the same price as as any other camera. It's just we we disregard that. Is it an appealing camera to you purely on its own merits as a camera? Because that really is the the question. Because at some point the price argument disappears. At some point, if you are you know successful at a certain level, it becomes possible to justify. Not easy necessarily, but it becomes possible. So then you're looking at it as a camera. Is there anything else that compares with it? Is there anything else that gives you that same experience, that same optical quality in that same kind of of physical? compactness and sturdiness. I mean, it, it's hard to describe, but if, uh, I mean, I've only held it at a trade show, but there is a, there is a, um, there's a tactile feeling to that camera that is really, really quite wonderful. It's very, very solid, very firm. It feels reassuring. Um, and even, even the fixed lens thing, I mean, I had the same thought going into, you know, buying an X100S way back, um, when that was relatively new, I thought, well, I, and this is coming from me who was also a tinkerer and I was like, okay, I, I just want to collect lenses, right? I want to have all the different focal lengths available to me. But something pretty special happens when you take that away, at least temporarily, when you say, look, I have 
one focal length. What am I seeing at this focal length? How do I view the world at this focal length? And then it becomes, you know, if you get used to that, it becomes much easier to see the appeal of a, um, you know, of a, of a fixed length camera. So uh, even as a tinkerer, Josh, I think you could make it work. I think it just, it takes, it takes some, some fortitude in that initial period where you, you give up access to, you know, all of your lenses. Yep. I, I think what I would end up doing, honestly, is I would buy the camera for my wife, let her use it to her heart's content. And then I would find out if I liked it and then I would steal it from her. That's how I would do it. So <laughs> it's a good approach. Right. So it's, it's all like, like I was, uh, like I was trying to say, it's more of a uh, camera that you want to enjoy, that you want to have fun with, and you want to play with, sort of. It's a storytelling camera, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like it's a very, it's not like, it, it's, yeah, like you said, it's not a work camera, it's a storytelling camera. And I, I think Craig Mott's review like really reflects that. Yeah, I love I loved that aspect of the review, actually, that it, it sort of reads like a story. And I love the intermissions that he... So, so good. So good. We got to try these. Those are great. Yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. And I, I especially like the uh, very thorough video section. That that was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was really concerned about that, you know, because I was very, very... Absolutely. <laughs> There's even a button on the top. <laughs> but now I, now I can sleep. I can sleep soundly at night knowing that. Yeah. The oh. like at this video. Yeah. Oh, man. Awesome. No, but you know what? I, I was just going to circle back to what you said initially, Alvaro, about it not being a work camera, because I'm going to disagree with you there as well. This okay. is definitely a camera that's capable of work, but I don't think that it's the same kind of work that you would put a DSLR through, right? I mean, that's that's again where it's it's a camera with, a I think, a much narrower audience than some of the others. But with uh, for that audience, it's perfect. Like if you are a photojournalist, if you are a war photographer, if you are someone who is regularly traveling in conditions where um, having a big bulky camera system is either not appropriate or not practical, but you want the best image quality, you need a camera that really stays invisible and does not get in your way as a photographer. Uh, I mean, I don't know that you could do better, right? And that's... that's Except weather sealing. Except weather sealing, yeah. I absolutely agree with with the with what you're saying. I, I was just saying I was just saying that it's not uh, for the type of work that I need to do every now and then. You know, and I, I was talking about my own work. Not that I, definitely it's a very competent camera that for storytelling, for photojournalism, for uh, reportage, for travel photography. I think it could work amazingly well. Uh, about that uh, inconspicuous or like what's the word? Uh, inconspicuousness. Yeah, right? that's right. If you're trying to be subtle, I don't know that a Leica camera is really the way to go because every now and then people people recognize them actually quite quite a bit on the streets, and and yeah, it's you're instantly drawing attention to yourself because you're uh, if somebody recognizes it as a Leica, it's they're gonna instantly know that it's worth several thousand dollars. So yeah, that's kind of like putting a target on yourself if you're on, on certain parts of the world. Oh, you can always pay more and take all the logos off. Oh yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right, that's right. Or you can, you can actually do what many people do, that's, they, they put black tape over the oh. Leica logo. And that's, I, I, I don't know that I would be brave enough to do that, but I can see how, <laughs> how it would help, yeah. And just to go back to, to what, what we said before, uh, 
like you were saying, Marius, if we take price out of the equation, that yeah, it's a it's a very attractive camera, and like I say, I just think Leica don't they don't price their products rationally, and that's something that some people can ignore, can can afford to ignore, and I'm hoping to be one of those guys from here to I don't know, the sooner the better. But sadly, as of today, I, I am not, and I cannot, uh, I cannot just disregard that aspect. I would love to have it as a toy, but even if I, I would, uh, even if uh, I didn't have to pay for it, uh, the question would be: Do I get to have this camera and some other cameras as well, or do I have to own only this camera? And I still don't think I could make that work, even if you, even if someone uh, was to give it to me for free. Uh, which I would love, definitely, listeners. If some some few <laughs> episode one uh, begging for a like a cue. <laughs> you, you you can find my you can find my address at analogsenses.com. Just check it out and <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I I don't think that I could give up uh, other cameras for this one, uh, and uh, I. Yeah, that doesn't mean I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't enjoy it, and definitely on a daily basis, I would love to shoot it. And and I'm very curious to to explore that that aspect of photography that uh, I haven't been able to to delve into so far. But let's tickle your money fancy that much further then, and let's talk about Sony's uh, recent uh, lens releases. What do you guys think? Oh boy! Oh, <laughs> oh boy! So uh, was it two weeks ago? Guys, one week ago, two weeks ago. I think it's already two. It's getting on two weeks, yeah. Two two weeks, aye, aye, aye. So two weeks ago, Sony had a uh, released the update to the a- popular A6000. The A6300 was really or announced, um, along with three new lenses: the 85 millimeter f1.4 G Master, the 24 to 70 f2.8 G Master, and the 70 to 200 f2.8 G Master, um, which is a sweet name. Um, and the lenses have a sweet price to boot. So, um, Alvaro, do you do you do those tickle your price fancy at all? Or yeah, I, like like I said, just just like I did the Leica Q, I've pre-ordered two of each. <laughs> you know, because one I, I want to review one of each, so you gotta buy them, of course, and and then another one for myself. And once I've I'm done with the reviews, I could send them back, but I think I'm just gonna throw them out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, if you want to, you can mail one out to here, and I, I'm now I'm begging for a lens too. Okay, we can work something out. Don't <laughs> I really, I really like the look of that 85 millimeter f1.4, as does everybody else. There's um, in the last two weeks, it looks like there's been some first impressions pieces that have come out specifically on Mirror Lessons. Um, right, it's Matthew Gasquet, that's his name, I believe. He's written some first impressions reviews, and he's even done a comparison between the 85 millimeter f1.4 G Master and the 85 millimeter f1.8 Battis lens, which everybody is talking about right now. Which one to go with if you're in the Sony full frame system? Um, as it turns out, I am that guy right in the middle of that thought process, and I was very thankful for Matthew's uh, first impressions article for sure. Yeah, it was a very interesting article to read, and I I usually love. Uh, uh, is it Matthew? Is it Mathieu? Oh, I, I don't have that good of an accent. I, I I was under the impression it was Mathieu, but I have no idea. I okay. really have no idea. Let's you, you said Matthew. Let's go with Matthew. And I'm sorry, Matthew, if, if that's if I if we got it wrong, we apologize. But next time we'll get it right. So 
uh, yeah, I, I usually agree with his choice, uh, with his choices, his criteria. I think he's a very reasonable guy uh, most of the time. And I was surprised to to see just how much he praised the new G Master lens because I was perhaps expecting him to be more skeptical towards it. I know he prefers uh, smallish lenses than than bigger ones. So yeah, it was surprising. So that definitely tells you that the new lens is it has to be amazing in terms of image quality. The image samples he had were definitely, definitely super sharp. I'm really looking forward to a comparison, a side-by-side -side comparison of those two lenses. That would be... Yeah, me too. You know, in a more controlled environment because right. he's, just, he's just pulling um, shots from the baddest lens that he shot, you know, maybe months ago. So he's trying to match similar shots, but if if they're not the exact same scene, then of course they're not really comparable. You're not going to be able to uh, draw the same conclusions that you would if you were performing a controlled test, right? Right. So, so if we if we look at those like the comparisons, they're not perfect, but right now, just from my naked eye, um, like I see a difference in the background blur. I think that the Sony's is a little smoother. It's um, certainly the the bokeh balls around the edges of the images have more of a football shape with the baddest lens and they're more circular with the Sony lens. Um, but man, I just knowing now that the G master is in Canada, it's a full $800 more than the baddest lens. I believe it's 600 us dollars more. Um, that's, that's a hard, uh, I just don't know anymore. I use when the lens was originally announced right off the hop, I thought, yep, that's my lens. That's my portrait lens. I'm going to buy it. I'm not even going to look back. But now as time goes by, I've done Alvaro's two week test mm -hmm. uh, where I no longer think about it every single hour, every minute of the day. And I think I'm leaning towards the baddest lens to save the, the $800 uh, cash. And because I, I just, I'm not sure that the added benefit is there. Right. If, if we're pragmatic, the Badis is definitely the, the more sensible choice, right? right? Although you may, the, there, there are situations where uh, you're actually going to need the f1.4 if you're a studio photographer and you, uh, the scene that you're trying to shoot actually requires the thinnest depth of field possible, then uh, you're going to have a real advantage by going with the G Master lens instead of the Badis. Although it's not going to be that huge a difference, but... It's going to be noticeable, noticeable, definitely, right? Right. And I think the big thing, I, I, even aside from price, like the other argument that Matthew makes in his, Matthew, Matthew, sorry, uh, article he makes in his First Impressions article is the size difference. Um, he really touches on that. And that's a big, big difference too. Right. To me, that's actually the, the, the most important factor, size and especially weight. Because once you start carrying two to three lenses in your bag, besides the camera body, uh, it becomes quite heavy surprisingly quickly. Right. When I was reading the impressions, I, there's a stapler on my desk at the office when I was reading it, and it's about, you know, an 850-gram um, stapler. Wow. And I put that up, and I held it in front of me as though I was shooting, you know, a photo with it, and no, that was the deciding factor, I think. Right. And you have to add the camera to that, because that's only the lens, right? Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, it's definitely a very big, bulky heavy lens and it's not the kind of lens that I would enjoy using you know on a daily basis uh, I wouldn't want to take it out for a walk around I wouldn't want to take it with me on a trip 
I think I would be much happier with the bodies in those circumstances. And uh, that's not to say that there's not, uh, you know, a legitimate uh, reason to buy the GM. I just don't think it's the one that I would personally want to buy. And then, of course, once you factor in the price as well, uh, you get to save a significant amount of money. It's not... It's nothing to sneer to sneeze at, exactly. And uh, yeah, uh, and crucially, I think the Batis is a lens that's outperforming everyone's expectations. Really, it's really, really uh, generating rave reviews. Everybody seems to be super happy with it, and uh, it actually was considered expensive when it, when it was announced. But then, upon reviewing it, I think everyone is saying that it's actually a, a great deal because it's a lens that is almost as sharp as the legendary Otis lenses from size. Right. Uh, not, not quite as sharp, but it's almost there, right? And those are four or $5,000 lenses, which is just insane. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the Batis is a fantastic lens, and the, the fact that they've released one that happens to be a bit faster does not take anything away from it at all. So I would be, I would be very happy with it, definitely. I agree. Um... So the you know the the wide variety of, of updates or, or releases that they, they had that day, um, they Sony clearly is answering questions here for professionals, right? Um, by releasing a, a high end portrait lens, by releasing two fast f two eight uh, zooms in the two popular focal ranges, they um, are clearly listening to people asking questions about whether or not they should switch over to Sony's full frame system professionally. Um, and leave DSLR systems behind. Now, I know, Marius, like you're looking at potentially changing camera systems here. Um, on the outside looking in, does this make any, does this give you any uh, clairvoyance maybe? You know, does it make it easier to look at Sony as a, a potential purchase? I suppose so. Uh, I mean, for me, it's always been a, a bit of a struggle with Sony because I I really like what they're doing with their lenses, um, with the lenses that are available for their system. I think it's a it's getting to be quite a healthy ecosystem. Um, the quality of the lenses is commendable, uh, and I and honestly, I don't I can't remember shooting with any Sony lens that wasn't great uh, with the uh, no no sorry I lied with the exception of the kit lens that comes with the a6000 but that doesn't really count that's obviously not in the same league here any of their serious lenses have been fantastic um, not a lot of good reviews for the 24 to 70 f4 though right I haven't tried that one right um, anyway but yeah so but so the lenses to me like that's that's not really a concern where I have a struggle um, choosing or not choosing Sony is when it comes down to the bodies and specifically the ergonomics of the bodies. Because I think on a technical level, it's it's fair to say that Sony is uh, is always pushing the envelope as far as what is possible with modern camera technology. And I appreciate that someone in the industry has to be doing that, even if it means that you know every few months we get a brand new camera. Um, it's so hard on the pocketbook. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's hard on the pocketbook and it's also just, it's a very strange philosophy to buy into as a working professional, right? Because I think I think this is where Nikon and Canon, um, what, what people in the mirrorless world um, don't take into account sometimes is people stay with Nikon and Canon not because of technical excellence, but because of the support network, because of the incredible um, long-term trustworthiness of the systems. And when you're releasing bodies 
every few months, it's very hard to build that same level of trust, right? And especially in the case of Sony, where they also aren't too good at supporting those cameras post-launch. Like they're not, they're not super keen on firmware updates and things like that. And, and so as someone who, you know, is going to drop several thousand dollars on a body, um, it's a different, it's a different kind of um value proposition versus uh, one of the other systems. Uh, but you know, even that would be fine for me. Like I could probably live with that given that you know I like switching around, I like uh, exploring new technology. Um, but I just don't find them comfortable to literally to, to hold, to shoot with. I don't find them uh, ergonomically intuitive or um, a good fit for my hand. And you know, familiarity will take the edge off of that. But to me, it's just if I'm not enjoying shooting with the gear that I have, I'm not going to shoot with it as much. And that's a problem, right? So for me now looking at this and, and trying to make a decision about what system I'm investing in um, for my professional work, Sony is definitely on the table. I mean, it has to be. Um, but I, I I don't know that I could get over the um, problems that I have just around basic usability. I think on a technical level, it would be a no-brainer. Like if they had really comfortable, uh, even one comfortable body, something that I would really enjoy shooting with, I think it would be a shoe-in, but they don't, um, at least for me. And I think that's a very real problem with Sony. They've received that uh, that criticism time and time again over the past few years, especially as the A7 series of cameras have become super popular all around the world. And uh, yeah, in particular, people complain a whole lot about the menu system, which is absolutely warranted. I mean, the menu system is perhaps the most unintuitive arrangement that you could possibly think of. And uh, that there's there's a very good reason why people throw that criticism Sony's way. And uh, I absolutely get it. I mean, joy, the joy factor is very important when, when making a purchasing decision. Uh, we're talking about uh, quite a few thousand dollars once you invest in a system, uh, you know, completely. So that's definitely something Sony needs to work on. Uh, I also think, uh, to go a little bit back to what you were saying about the support network and the the trustworthiness of the relationship that is that is established between the manufacturer and the and the photographer, I completely agree with what you said. And uh, but I think I don't see why the fact that they release bodies every few months has to have a negative impact on that trustworthiness. As long as they support them, you know, for a few years and, and never leave you hanging, I don't think they are exclusive. Uh, I'm okay with them releasing newer bodies. I don't feel like I need to upgrade every year. And I think that's the sane call. I mean, yes, we all like to be on the bleeding edge of technology, but if there's not a legitimate reason to upgrade, if there's not a real need for you to uh, sell your camera and spend another $3,000 on a newer body that only adds a couple features you're not going to use anyway, then I'm, I'm perfectly happy using what I have for a couple more years until I feel like I'm not getting everything out of it that I should. Right. I I think Marius would have a really hard time coming from Fuji, though, knowing how many firmware updates and everything that they give to the X-T1 or the X... I don't think that's really fair to say because Sony is improving a lot on that front lately. I mean, they... I've had mine for six weeks and and I've been researching for a little prior to that. And I haven't... Has there been anything that's come down the pipe in that time or... Right. But they did add in, in... I mean, let's... Uh, keep in mind the a7 II that you bought and I own as well is a camera that 
it's barely a year old, a year and a few months, maybe, right? Uh, fair argument, fair. And in that time, they actually have released the 2.0 firmware update, which is incredible. It added the face detection uh, autofocus so that you can use Canon lenses with pretty good performance. And that was a huge feature that many, many people w were asking Sony to implement ever since they released the a7R2 because that camera could do it right from the get-go, right? And people knew that the a7II, uh, the hardware was ready for it. The, the sensor on the a7II had those phase detection points. So it was just a matter of updating the firmware. And of course, Sony took its time. They, 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 they spent uh, a few months uh, getting the firmware update ready. And when they released it, it worked flawlessly really yeah. and they also added the uncompressed raw feature that's yet another thing that people were asking them uh, to implement fair enough I, I actually remember now that i did update my camera so clearly right. my memory is being jogged here and what i guess what i want to uh, try to explain is that sony is uh, i feel like they are they're actually listening to their users and they actually uh, say it publicly that they do listen and that the decisions they make uh, and the features they add is not just a, a random, uh, you know, a, a random process that they take the, the demands of their users very seriously. Of course, every company is going to say that. But in this case, I feel like their, action, their actions actually uh, seem to agree with that, with that statement, right? But that's that's pretty selective. I mean, what what evidence is there? Because I know, for instance, the poor folks who invested in the original RX One, um, you know, they had a whole raft of, you know, not deal breaking concerns necessarily, but but serious issues with the camera that would have been easily solved with a firmware update, and no firmware update ever came. You know, they, there was one initial bug fix, and then that was it. And so uh, while they are, you know, I, I would hope they're listening to some photographers and some feedback and incorporating it, um, the, the, thing, the bigger problem to me is that if I think of Sony and my interactions with Sony as a company, and I, I think of the people who I know that shoot Sony, I don't, I don't get the impression that they feel super cared for or, um, you know, like their opinion directly matters or... Um, that they can expect firmware updates when they encounter a problem, um, and and to me that's part of the trust that that I uh, that's the element that that I would struggle with, um, and if they build that out, which I expect they will, I mean they're they're positioning themselves in a place where now they've got the technical chops, you know that's there's a there's a cap there like okay they're on top of the technical stuff it's all it's all taken care of so if they want professionals like true professionals to be investing heavily in their system to be switching away from the heavily entrenched DSLR setups that they've been lugging around for 10 years they have to offer equivalent value in terms of service as well and i think that's where they're going to have to put in more effort um, going forward because again to me like on a technical level, I think they're the best cameras on the market um, just because they're the ones that are usually bringing new technology into the market. And just about every other camera manufacturer uses Sony sensors. Like they're just, they have this, this, this vast um, technical reach in the industry, but that's not like, there's more to it than that essentially. And, and that's, it's the other stuff that bothers me. I would hope that this G, G Master introduction will kind of signify their first foray, if you will, into 
you know, they've got the lenses out there. They've got the technology out there. They can let people go and shoot. They can do some art research and development on other G master type focal or lenses, excuse me. Um, they could try and mimic a lot of what Fuji does with their prime lineup. But I would hope that now that there's our actual professional lenses out there, maybe they're able to divert some resources to that customer service part. Yeah, I, th- I don't think they really have much of a choice. Marius is absolutely, no, that's right. absolutely right. I mean, there's some horrible stories out there about how they've handled things. Yeah, yeah, they they really need to build uh, a competent support network, and I would like them to actually improve upon that. Uh, the, what what other companies are doing right now, because like like uh, Sony's coming from behind, they're playing catch up with Canon and Nikon, so. Uh, it may not be enough for them to just match what Canon and Nikon do. They might actually need to um, offer something that's substantially better to get people to switch, which is what Sony needs right now. So yeah, I agree absolutely that it's it's a very, very important factor. And uh, every professional needs to look at that. And it's actually for many, if not most, it's actually the number one priority. So yeah, absolutely agree. Now, So looking at... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Oliver. No, sorry. No, I was just going to say that uh, it's important to keep in mind that Sony has changed dramatically in the past two years, right? So the Sony that released the original RX-1, I think it's a completely different company than the one they are today. I think once they released the A7, it was like striking gold. I don't think they were fully ready for what was coming. And uh, now we're seeing them... They know what they have on their hands and they know that this is their chance and they're stepping, they're putting everything they've got into the into the A7 series of, of cameras, the lenses, the, the E-mount ecosystem in general. So yeah, I would say it's, it's normal to a point that we're seeing them become more responsive and, and take care of, listen more and take care of those issues. Uh, but they still have a really long way to go. There's no argument there. They they really need to prove it in the long term that they can keep it up, that they can continue to provide relevant firm, firmware updates and timely as well because it's it, if they release a firmware update eight months after a problem arises, then that's not really helpful to anybody. So, yeah. So money aside, Alvaro, are, are the G Master lens uh, introductions and this A6300 step up over the A6000, are they uh, a good foot forward or a bad foot forward? I think they're an extremely good foot forward. I think everything is very well measured. I think they released what they knew people wanted. As far as the A6300 goes, I'm not especially blown away, but uh, there's perhaps one aspect of the camera that Sony is definitely trying to sell, and I'm not sure it's been uh, getting all the attention that it needs. Is the fact that the new camera records 4K video, but uh, that it does it in super 35 millimeter mode, and I think that's uh, very important for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that, uh, as you guys know, uh, the se- the uh, a typical camera sensor has a very high pixel density, right? So even if a a sensor of the A6300 is 24 megapixels for an APS-C size. That uh, translates to a very high pixel density, definitely higher than the 4K resolution that is uh, now the standard for ultra-high-res video. Uh, So 
what does that mean? It means if you were to just pick uh, the native size of 4K video out of the sensor, you would have a completely, uh, uh, not incompatible, but it would be a very weird system because it, the, the area, the surface of the sensor would be really small. So what they do is they, they enable full pixel readout in a bigger area. Effectively, what they're doing is oversampling the signal. They're capturing a lot more detail, a lot more information than is needed. And then they are uh, downsizing that footage to 4K. And what you get with that is super sharp images, extremely, extremely clean as far as noise is concerned, because once you uh, get a once you use a bigger sensor area and shrink the image down, all that noise is also uh, reduced substantially. So it's a it's a much better way to record 4K overall. But there's a, another advantage, and that's that the A7R too can also record 4K and the A7S, and both of those can can also record in super 35 millimeter mode. What that means is you get the exact same field of view, regardless of which camera you use. So you can shoot with the same lenses, you can shoot uh, those lenses on either camera, and even Sony's video cameras uh, also uh, are compatible with E-mount lenses and also shoot in Super 35 mode. So what you have is a system that is completely uh, versatile. You can mix and match however you want, and that's a huge value for videographers. So I was at first not really impressed with that, part of the camera because I'm not a user that needs 4K, but I can definitely see why for videographers and people who are concerned about that, it's a huge advantage over the old A600, A6000, sorry, that didn't do 4K at all, right? Marius, like you, you recommended this camera, the A6000 to a pile of people, correct? I have, yep. And and does the A6300, like what, what Alvaro is saying about the 4K you said super 35 millimeter mode. Excuse my inexperience here. I don't know if I've ever shot a video on either of my cameras. Um, but anyway, does that change anything with your recommendations, Marius? It, well, so the people that I recommend the A6000 to are generally people who are looking to uh, obviously graduate beyond. Like it's it's typically people who are shooting with their smartphones, but they they feel like they want to dig into photography and really you know make something um, more serious out of it. Um, and for them, it's usually a toss-up between like the A6000 or one of the Olympus bodies, you know, the EM10 or something. Um, the A6300 to me falls into this very strange place because it no longer inhabits the same zone as the A6000. So to me, uh, the video capabilities that Alvaro just described put it firmly into competition with something like the GH4. Um, you know, this this level of um, semi-professional, but very, very capable um, cameras for essentially for, for, for videography. Um, on the photography side of things, I don't know that the A6300 does enough to justify the price hike over the A6000. If anything, it makes the A6000 look like a much better value, which to me, it always has been a bargain. Like the amount of, of, uh, of technical excellence that you get in that camera for the amount of money that you spend on it is amazing. And it's such an, like, it's a perfect gateway drug into the Sony system. Um, and I don't know that the A6300 actually does very much to threaten that. I, I almost feel like they work better in parallel because um, even though marketing wise, you'd think of the A6300 as a replacement 
I I don't see it really competing in the same space at all. Like it's it's a higher end. It's not even higher end camera. It's just positioned differently. Like it's it's aimed in a different spot, intentionally or otherwise. So I, to me, actually, that's the strangest part of the new announcements. And I look forward to seeing how the market reacts to it. I mean, are people going to um, spend the extra money and go for the A6300 over the A6000? Or are they just going to realize, again, how great the A6000 is and just go straight there, right? Because if you're, if you're just starting with a system, then even the A6000, like that's, that's an amazing place to start. And then you go to an A7. Um, whereas with the A6300, I feel like you're going to go the other way. You're probably already an A7 user and you're looking for a B cam. Right. That's, a, that's absolutely spot on. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, the A6000 would be a, my backup body, I think. There if, you go. Uh, like looking forward, but. Yeah, but I think they're not replacing the A6000. I think both cameras remain. Right, it's still for sale. That's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, it, it, the A6000 hasn't dropped in price yet. And I don't think there's much reason to expect it will uh, as a result of the A6300 being launched. I think, it, yeah, it, w- it will surely drop in price a little bit more over time, but not as a result of the new camera. So I think you're absolutely absolutely right, Marius, in saying that they are not meant to be, uh, the A6300 is not meant to be a replacement, but rather filling another gap in the lineup for Sony users. So yeah, I think both cameras will find their their target market or not, but I agree that this, the A6000 is absolutely an incredible value. I'm actually very seriously considering buying one for myself because like I said, I don't really need the 4K capabilities of the A6300 and so I very much would prefer to save some money and and get the A6000, which to my eyes uh, to this day is still phenomenal. Save the money and buy the new 24 to 70 G Master. I'm more of a 70 to 200 guy. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I wanted to touch on this here yet before we, we kind of signed off all of Like, you have an F4, correct? I do. I've owned it for a few months already. It seems, I on, on first impressions, like, I can't believe that the F28 is, like, almost the same size. Yeah, it's a little bit longer, but it's not substantially thicker. Right. So, yeah, it's, they, I don't know what they did to keep it that compact, to be honest. But it looks like a fun, fantastic lens, definitely. Right. So it looks like, based on just straight off the top of my head, it looks like you get, you know, f four versus f two eight, um, a larger, you know, front element, um, all of the G Master capabilities. But the, then you also have eleven apertures, or sorry, aperture blades. I think on the new f two eight seventy to two hundred versus is it nine on the f four? Uh, yeah, it's nine rounded blades on the a on the f four version. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, there there's more. Uh, high-end uh, features or sort of uh, it's a more polished lens if you will the f2.8 obviously because it's but from my understanding like they've got a big big lens there the f4 to top because i like I've, it's got good reviews yeah definitely definitely i i i absolutely love mine and actually for our listeners if you're listening to this on wednesday or later uh, i actually reviewed the f4 version for tools and toys and it should have been published uh, on Tuesday, so you can read my very, very in-depth take on that lens. Uh, but I heard over 6,000 words. It's almost into 7,000 by now, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of editing for me to do tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm still tweaking the last few few details and selecting the final pictures. But yeah, I, hopefully it'll be 
entertaining to read despite of the length. I, I think uh, when you posted your Paris photo story, um, I remember you showed a couple photos of, I think, Ile de la Cité, um, and you used the 70 to 200 f4 for that. I just love the way that it compressed the, the landscape shots, that compression that you can get with a telephoto lens. Right, that's my favorite feature. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's incredible. It looks fantastic. I actually haven't shot much at that end. Uh, yet I've used it for trips. I've used it for a couple of jobs that I had to take care of. So I do incorporate it in my in my regular shooting, but it's not a lens I've experimented with all that much in my personal shooting until this past uh, trip to Paris or for New Year's. So it was very fun to play with, definitely. And uh, I think what we're going to see uh, in comparison with the new lens, I think the the GM will probably... Um, well, it will definitely bring that extra stop of light that for some people will make all the difference in the world. If you're an event photographer and you're going to be shooting in indoors most of the time and you're going to be shooting in not very well-lit places, having that extra stop of light can really have a positive impact on your on your output because you're going to get to save a stop of ISO and get cleaner, uh, nicer images as a result. As far as image quality is concerned, I'm expecting the new lens to be a little bit better than the f4, but I'm not convinced it's going to be really that noticeable because the f4 lens is excellent. It's super sharp. Uh, the bokeh is nice. It's. I think I, I. I really, really. I was really impressed with the lens. I mean, I knew it was good, but when you're focused on taking, I don't know, if it's a product shot or or a portrait session. You're thinking about your subject. You're not st stopping to really look at 100% and notice the sharpness of the lens. But now that I've had to for the review, I actually have a much, much higher uh, regard for that lens. I was really, really impressed with it. And I think if you can live with f4 as, you, as your maximum aperture, um, I say the, the f4 is actually the better value out of the two because it's half the price. Oh, well, we are assuming it will be half the price because the the f2.8 lens still has not, hasn't an official price. Uh, it hasn't been announced yet. But if we take the A-mount version of that lens as a reference, that lens is $3,000 and it's already a few years old. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, even, even more than $3,000. Uh, it wouldn't be totally out of the question. It has to be. The amount of technology in there is going to push it for sure above that $3,000 range. Right. And and in those in that circumstance, I I just don't think there's enough. Uh, I don't, I'm not expecting enough of a gap in terms of image quality to justify the extra cost. But like I said, if you do need the speed, then unfortunately you're going to have to go for it because there's no other lens, native or otherwise, that can compete with that. So what do you think? I remember you saying, Alvaro, in a, in a message way back that Sony has about five more lenses even that they have to announce by spring or something. They kind of put their, they gave a roadmap of some sort, correct? Right. Uh, back in, I believe it was October or so, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes for people to see. But uh, basically the story is that a Sony representative, I don't remember if it was a director or whoever, but an official, in official capacity said, that Sony would be releasing five new, no, eight, sorry, eight new lenses for the full-frame E-mount system uh, in early 2016, which everybody took to mean roughly spring, 
right, from here to the spring. Uh, three of them are out, which are the new GM lenses. Right. So that leaves five. And I do think we're going to see some more affordable primes come out, which is something many, many people have been uh, asking Sony for. Well, should we put a friendly wager down in uh, the three of us and see where it goes? I'm in. Let's go for that. Yeah. I'm game. Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Overall, fire off. What do you think in the next two to three months or so? What are we going to see from them? I think one, if, if I'm trying to focus on that more affordable prime claim, right? Or, right. or rumor. So I'm going to say we're going to see a 35 millimeter F2 lens with autofocus because that's a very popular lens in other systems. And surprisingly, we don't have it uh, for the Sony system yet. Right. There's an F1.4 and an F2.8, right? Right. So there's a, a, a weird gap there. And I realized the F2.8 was a great compromise because it's a super compact lens and Sony on the early days wanted to surprise and wow everyone with the uh, small size and uh, the compactness of the system, despite it being full frame, right? But now I think we're over that a little bit. If anything, I think people are asking Sony to deliver uh, more substantial bodies with better ergonomics. Uh, and so there's certainly room in the system for a lens that is just as good optically, but a little bit bigger in size. And uh, 35.2, I think, is a great compromise in size and speed. It's a, it's a lens that I personally love. I own an old Canon 35.2 for the FD mount, which I really, really, really like. I think at f2 and 35 millimeters, there's a, just a just enough of a background blur to to get great subject isolation, and I think it's a it's a very, very nice uh, lens formula. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Hopefully, hopefully they'll they'll announce it soon. Safe wager, to to say the least, I would say. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Marius, what do you think? I'm going to hop on the prime train as well, but I'm going to posit that they will put out a wide angle prime of some sort. I don't know how fast it'll be necessarily, but hopefully it'll be probably in that same F2 range. Um, and I'm going to say something like a 16, maybe 16 mil prime. Something like that would be good. I think uh, I think that's actually one area where they need to fill in the blanks a little bit is, is on the wider end. Um, and, uh, yeah, if they're going to do a set of primes, then it makes sense that they have something covering that side of it as well. Seems, seems like a possibility. Cause I've heard, uh, rumors that, um, Zeiss is thinking about it releasing an 18 millimeter baddest lens. That would be perfect. Yeah. Wow. That, that would be awesome. Yeah. So 16 mil, uh, millimeter, you don't know about speed. So we're going like a half or like a fair, a really, really safe wager here. <laughs> I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say F2. Let's do okay. that. 16 okay. F2. There you go. Okay. So we've got two people down on paper. Um, I I think um, they've announced. My wager is on a wide angle zoom for the G Master line. Um, when you look at Canon uh, or Nikon or even Olympus, they all have this kind of holy trinity of uh, F2.8 zoom lenses. Um, they're 70 to 200 millimeter F2.8, uh, 24 to 70 millimeter F2.8. So I think to really get all of those professionals um, really looking at Sony and taking them seriously, I expect to see a wide angle uh, G Master lens. It could be 16 to 35. I know we were talking about this a little earlier, Marius. Um, I think Nikon has a 14 to 24 millimeter F2.8. So maybe it'll be 14 to 24, but they do have a 16 to 35 millimeter F4 that they can kind of um, use as a, as a model. So I'm thinking a 16 to 35 millimeter F2.8 G Master lens 
which will be substantial in size and weight and price, but it would kind of fit the current trend. That's where my money is. Interesting. That's very interesting because that, I would characterize that as a risky bet. Interesting. How come? Well, if if they're going to release another uh, F2.8 Zoom, why not release them all together? That's my question. Hmm. What do you think? Could be. Could it just be that they're not fully complete at this point? Um, but you know, it is, it, it is reasonable. It's entirely reasonable to wonder why it wouldn't be ready already. Well, we'll see. We'll see soon enough. Right. It won't do me, do me any good. I don't think uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bigger fan of the primes. I think your wagers are ones that I'm kind of hoping for. Yeah, I would be very happy with the 35.2. I really, really, really would like to own such a lens. I mean, to me, it's probably not going to matter unless I decide to adopt Sony as my system like you guys. But get in there. Get in there, eh? Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. I'm still deciding. I'm still deciding. We can throw you a welcome party. <laughs> Does that welcome party include free lenses? Because if so... It includes oh. free drinks. Definitely. <laughs> We've started our begging process in this one, so... Yeah, you guys are begging. I'm, I'm not... <laughs>